0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Oconus, the Contractor's Life. I'm your host, Scott Dresser. My guest today is a special guest, uh, Mr. Rob Crott. He's got a couple of books published uh, both this century. Uh, one of them is uh the AR-15 Operator's Guild Manual and Save the Last Bullet for Yourself, former member of the United States Army, and I'll let him take it from there. Rob, welcome to the show. Hey, good to have, good, to, good to be here. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely, it's, it's a sincere pleasure. Um, now you have a very interesting background in history, and I'm not going to muddy the waters by trying to get into that. I'll let you take care of that. Uh, but one of your books um, I'm, I'm reading, and I got to say, for the folks out there, if you've not read it. Um, I'm not a, an avid reader, but I do like a good book, and I'm telling you, this book, even though it's a biography of sorts, it reads like a great work of fiction. Oh, thanks. So, uh, so with that, uh, why don't we go ahead and uh, go ahead and start by telling folks, uh, give them uh, some, some, tell them your background, how you got started, uh, where it all began, and, and we'll go from there. Uh, well, yeah, uh, I joined
1: the guard, uh, when I was 17, I was still a junior in high school, uh, went to, uh, Fort Benning that summer as and Bravo, uh, came home the day my senior year started high school, uh, and, uh, you know, drilled that year and then went back to, uh, finish up OSET at Fort Benning, AIT at Harmony Church, uh, and, uh, uh, had got a, a partial scholarship to a college, so enrolled, and uh, they had a new colonel, uh, old-time SF guy John T. Harrelson, uh kind of famous, and uh, he took a look at me and put me into a two-year program. So, uh, all because I'd been uh, to Benning and had refused to uh, sign in to ROTC early and, and skip AIT, and uh, I wanted to go to AIT, people thought I was nuts, and. Um, so I did, uh, did two years, got an early commissioning. I was still in the guard in, a, in an infantry unit and, uh, finished college early, went active duty, uh, 11 alpha infantry officer, first, uh, uh, duty station was Korea, a battalion there and time in the DMZ. Uh, came back, went to the Q course, uh, spent some time there ended up on staff at 10th group eventually. But when I was at Devon's, uh, which is where 10th group was back in the day, an opportunity to go to Harvard for uh, uh, my master's, and uh, ended up getting out, going to Africa, and coming back uh, to tenth group on staff, and uh, uh, later on IMA to Fort Hood uh, as a uh, staff officer at a armor brigade, and uh, shortly after that, I, w- I was a federal cop. I'd been to IOAC at Benning, uh, went to Fletch flood- and uh, Glencoe, and then uh, worked for a corporation for a while and uh, got headhunted into that, but uh, ended up going to Somalia as a DA consultant to the command and uh, running a unit there of uh, civilians, and uh, things just kind of went from there. I, I was writing for Soldier Fortune magazine a little bit by that time and soon became chief foreign correspondent, Um had been to Croatia as a volunteer officer when the, the war started there, before Somalia, and uh, went back after Somalia when uh, things kicked off in Bosnia, worked on a brigade staff there, uh, and that pretty much is a period of book covers. Uh, uh, Croatia on the, uh, on the border, and then uh, Somalia, and then uh, Bosnia. And it's only really about a year of my life. Um, a, mem- a memoir, I guess you could say, or a travel book. Um, and uh, since the mid-90s, I've uh, uh, worked uh, for Chevron in Angola, uh, training uh, uh, armed guard force, uh, worked for an oil company in uh, in Yemen, uh, several trips uh, to Southeast Asia and, and Central America, and up until did all that stuff up until about 2003 uh deployed to iraq and did the contracting gig over there for about five six years including uh, blackwater and a couple of other major major outfits everything from window liquor to uh country manager uh various, various different companies so site security manager uh instructor trainer team leader you name it uh Left Iraq to go to the Human Terrain System at Fort Leavenworth, where I could use my uh, background in, in anthropology and uh, my experience and, and my studies in tribal cultures and that type of thing, and ended up going to uh, <clears throat> excuse me, ended up going to Africa, to Africom, as a, a social cultural research analysis advisor to the command and did that for a bit, came back, had to go back through the human training system program again, and uh, they were having their issues, and uh, I picked up a, a job as a director of port security in uh, Dominican Republic, which was a, a pretty sweet gig uh, for about two years, and brought some Americans down to work for me and left there and up in Afghanistan uh, on a State Department-supported uh, contract, uh, provincial security manager in a couple different provinces, and. Uh, since then, uh, occasional contracts here and there, uh, off and on for about five years now, uh, worked, uh, in Abu Dhabi at the National Police Academy as an instructor. And uh, I spent, uh, three and a half years, uh, casual employment, uh, as a trainer and advisor to, uh, an Indian nation, uh, tribal security, uh, guard force and, basically uh, working security for them and a couple of pipelines as well. And uh, Hurricane and Bahamas relief and yacht security and executive protection for uh, some dignitaries like, uh, well, Joe Biden, uh, uh, Steve Bannon on some of their speaking engagements, uh, escort for <clears throat> some high end jewelers out of New York. Uh, TV uh, crew security, done that during the elections and most recently in New York uh, during the, the current uh, uh, troubles d- over there. But uh, that's about it. That's uh, that's the high points, I guess, uh, sketching it out. But i uh, been doing this type of work for quite a while, and uh, I don't know where to go from there. So, <laughs>
0: well, we covered a lot of ground. I, um,
1: yeah.
0: I should know I went to a medical school like my mother told me to but anyways uh. <laughs> yeah uh so you you got an early start in all of this uh what what some of us liken to refer to as a, as an early adopter. um so when you so you got out of the army at uh what year did you you got out of the army in the eighties uh yeah
1: eighty eight i was uh twenty five i had uh done my uh, three year voluntary uh, and looked at, uh, staying in and, uh, but I was in grad school at Harvard and the an opportunity came up to, uh, to go to Africa and, uh, work with, uh, work on Richard Leakey's project, uh, and, uh, just, uh, kind of changed gears a little bit. And, uh, you know, woulda, shoulda, coulda, I've had opportunities to go back in. Uh, you know, I looked at going into, back into SF, uh, Guard as a, uh, enlisted because I was prior enlisted and had some issues there. Unknownst to me, uh, they were looking at my physical incorrectly because, uh, I thought I was an initial entry uh, soldier. Uh, before that, I'd been in the 12th for a little bit and they got deactivated and two other, uh, two command slots in, uh, uh an Army Reserve and a National Guard unit, uh, both uh, ran into problems with the deactivation in, in the nineties. So I was just kind of stymied as far as even reserve service. Uh times I regretted leaving active duty, but other times I'm like, well, I wouldn't have been able to do the things I've done and traveled and um, you know, I've traveled, worked in or vacationed in eighty foreign countries, uh spent several years as an expat, actually lived in Canada for five years um and you know was based out of there for work overseas. But um yeah, you know, that was that was the era. You know, I was 80 uh, eighty eighty through ninety basically. I uh uh graduated from IOAC, if you ask for Advanced Course at Benning uh December of ninety. So I was pretty much uh ten years that entire decade uh in uniform one way or the other. Hmm. Now um I believe you
0: I don't remember if you mentioned I know you talked about uh you mentioned that you were enlisted but so were you an enlisted or were you commissioned um during your time in the in the army
1: Oh yeah I was uh I was an enlisted uh, National Guard kid for 3 years Okay um discharged from the guard as an E5 and then uh I took a commission and how it works is uh the day they discharge you, you're commissioned into the U.S. Army Reserve, and then the next day, if you're in the guard, you get picked. I got picked up by my uh, by my unit. I'd, I'd, I'd been in as an enlisted guy and, a, and an officer cadet, uh, and then as soon as I uh, was eligible, with uh, you know graduation looming, uh, I put in my packet just like any other RTC cadet, even though I was already a reserve lieutenant. I just applied for uh, active duty. Pick my dream sheet. Uh people said, Well, chances you get an in infantry and career are pretty slim, just the way it goes. And uh I was lucky, uh the drawdown really started the next year with uh General Wickham stating they would accept the first one thousand lieutenants who wanted to quit. Uh no questions asked. Would you could be a day out of West Point and they'd uh they'd let you uh resign and go back to the Back to the block, but uh, caused some issues for some of my friends who were a year or two behind me that had scholarships, full scholarships, uh, owed the army four years, and uh, when it came time to go active duty, they said we don't want you, we don't need you, we've got too many people. Hmm. But uh, and uh,
0: yep, that's interesting because that's about the (laughs) that that same time frame. I've I've talked with, with a number of my friends and when we talk about my time on active duty in the reserves and, and, and I never really quite figured out some of these guys apparently uh, to some degree, similarly with, as you or uh, where understood that. And I went, Oh, okay. Um, but <laughs> we just decided, but I mean, it was, it was always a head scratcher for me. So you, you yeah, know, I, I, had a, I had
1: a classmate uh, lived in the, the room next to me in the queues. We had similar backgrounds, uh, uh, both went to uh, religious-based schools, uh, both Pennsylvania National Guard. Both joined up at 17. Both got an early commission. Uh, hmm. We went active duty together uh, at, at IOBC together. He did his three years, got out, joined the French Foreign Legion for five years. Wow. And uh, he ended up in Bosnia. He's in the, I think he's mentioned in my book. He ended up in Bosnia two weeks behind me after I left and actually took command of my uh, my detachment. <laughs> uh, and of course, the foreigners, especially the Brits, could not believe that uh, that we that he knew me. Because as soon as my name came up, he said, "Well, yeah, I know the guy." Uh, and uh, he uh, got a uh, heads up from IMA. Uh, he called Arthur Sen and said, "Hey," and they said, "Where have you been for five years?" He said, "I've been in the French Foreign Legion," <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he uh, he made captain by that time. And they sent him to Korea for six months. And I said, I, I've been trying to get back to Korea for for the better part of a decade. And uh, he shows up, makes one phone call, and he gets orders. Uh, and he later re Uh They kind of screwed him. He went in as an E-4, which uh, he should have went in as an uh, E-5. That would have been his highest rank hell before commissioning and probably boarded to E-6. But I and mean, then actually made him go back to the basic training. He had to go out to uh, Fort Leonard Wood, I think, to just the regular basic training. And that was pretty much a waste of time. But he, uh, he went infantry. He shipped to, uh, uh, Korea. And his first sergeant looked at him and said, Didn't I just see you here like a year ago? You, I, I swear to God, we had a captain here just like you. And he goes, Yeah, that was me. Uh, so he was in the JSA, uh, then went SF and, uh, Last I knew, he was in the 10th and I think well on his way to Sergeant Major, if not already Sergeant Major, but oh. it's just a, anyway, it's a little side story, but an example of a, of a guy that, uh, came out of the guard, won active duty as an officer and really wasn't, wasn't happy with the way things were going in, in the 80s and, and got out and, and we've had similar adventures. so It was kind of, kind of interesting, but then, uh, you know, he played that, uh, well, I was prior of I'm going back, huh. and uh, and had a great career, you know. But uh, uh, yeah, there's like there's there's some some people, some interesting backgrounds, interesting stories out there when you uh, you look around a little bit, you know. But
0: there are there, there there's actually a lot of them if if, if you're looking for it and uh, if you get lucky enough to uh, come across the people. It yeah. Um, so you mentioned uh, and I've heard this term before, and it was another army guy and we were staying at some place in Kuwait, and he mentioned human terrain, and you mentioned it. And, and I never could quite fathom, <laughs> you know, I mean, you can think of all kinds of things, but can you, are you able to, can you explain to people what human terraining is?
1: Well, now, human terrain, T-E-R-R-A-I-N, uh, just refers to, the, to the, the green. You know, you've got your, your uh, red, blue, and then the green, the civilian populace.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, and that has a lot to do with that, but, uh, so the idea is, oh, now we're going back to some of the hearts and minds stuff, but, uh, it was really human train system came up with the idea of using, uh, anthropology and social science to, uh, basically pick up on, on things in the, in the area of operations that the commander needed to know. And there was a lot of – I know there was some pushback by some of the folks in the program that they did not want to be intelligence gather intelligence gatherers, although we were all DA intelligence analysts, either uh, anywhere from, uh, I think, GS-9 up to GS-15, which was a social scientist position, but we were actually uh, ran out of uh, Huachuca. And um, it was a, a difficult to uh, get support. Uh, in academia for the program, because he had all the lefties, anti-military folks, anti-Iraq, anti-Afghanistan, uh, screaming about, uh, you know, this was wrong, anthropology shouldn't be used to kill people, et cetera, et cetera, this type of – and it was quite a movement uh, underway. But unfortunately, we did get a, a few good people in the program, Um uh, unfortunately, it just uh, wasn't utilized, uh, I think, to its full extent, and I don't think they had enough, enough good people.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: but uh, I think it was value added. Um, like I said, several people I knew in the program, good friends. I was kind of an odd man out. They looked at me and they said, well, any, we had a bunch of uh, uh, company-grade officers and a few majors uh, that had uh, uh, SF experience it seemed to be slotted into what they called a research manager position which was to uh help uh the social scientists but in effect we were actually like pretty much a team suitor, or the team bodyguard. Hmm. Uh but then I had actual uh hard chops in anthropology at Harvard, which was my major, and experience in the field uh working anthropology and assignments as a social scientist or cultural advisor uh, with the DA and also corporations. So it was like, well, what do we do with this guy? You know, almost. But I ended up as a social scientist in Africa. But, um, hmm. yeah, it was an interest, interesting program. Um, and under the, the new counterinsurgency doctrine, they were. it was a key element, uh, but it was just a new thing. I don't think it uh, had enough time to get its legs, and uh, it no longer exists, unfortunately. Huh. But uh, yeah,
0: okay, yeah. Well, I mean, it is an interesting term, and you know, someone yeah. could look at it as euphemistically, you know, for something else. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> okay. Um, so your 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 book, um, you know, save the last bullet for yourself. We've talked about that a little bit offline um it, it is like I said, and you said that was Croatia and you mentioned a buddy of yours a friend uh, what um I'm not as far along as I'd like to be I'm I'm, I'm coming up on chapter four now uh yeah but, but you've mentioned several names and one of them you you, you mentioned a couple times in there has been a, a good friend of yours that had your back is is one of those characters you've mentioned the guy you were just talking about I
1: what you mean the guy that uh, went uh, Pando Willie well, all those guys? Well, no, I mean I haven't I haven't mentioned any of those any of those guys yet. No, no, as no. As no, far as no. only,
0: only yeah, no, I didn't mean that you've mentioned them while we've been talking. Uh, but you, uh, who, you mentioned the guy that was. Um, uh, that uh, be- went to the French Foreign Legion and and went got to Korea. Was that was he one of the guys? you've No, no,
1: Tom. That yeah, he uh, uh, he wasn't there when I was there. He showed up two weeks after I left Bosnia. Okay. Uh, yeah, there might be a mention of him in in, in the book. I don't I don't remember to have to pull it off the shelf. But okay. I actually had written an, a, an entire chapter about him, which which didn't make the cut with the publisher. Hmm. But might all well, end up in a in a book someday about. Uh, various soldiers of fortune, uh, American volunteers, that type of thing, either in that conflict or a multitude of conflicts. Uh, there were probably three other guys, uh, I know that I got enough information and, and, and basically wrote up, a, a you know, a, an entire chapter on some of the other individuals that were there. They had their own stories, mm. you know, but, uh, <clears throat> you no. Know.
0: Okay. So, so. But I think
1: uh, it, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, what's interesting? I mean, uh, you know, in, in those days, and, and as you said, yeah, I've been at this a while. Uh, I just had a, a a chat with somebody, and I said, "Well, I was in uh, Angola in, in uh, '95, and uh, what would you make a month?" I go, "Well, six grand." Well, they're like, "Oh, you only six grand a month?" I go, "It was 1995." <laughs> do the inflationary, uh, you know, uh, you know, 10 grand a month when I was in Somalia, uh, for a contract with DA, uh, worked out to be, I think like, um, 30,000 or something, you know? <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, because we hit the big money in, in Iraq at one time and guys are making anywhere from 150 to 200 K, a, a year or more. Uh, and the old joke where, you know, I won't work for less than 700 a day and this type of thing. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's those jobs have, have won away. Those, those, uh, you know, they've scaled down and you've got, uh, companies like Reed or, um, global offering guys, you know, like maybe 60,000 a year to stand in a tower at a gate right. in Afghanistan, you know, uh, 30, or thirty-five thousand a year to be a gate guard at Bond Steel.
0: Right. Uh,
1: I remember advising some young guys uh, to go to Bond Steel when it was seventy-five to a hundred thousand a year, just so they could get an education hmm. because of the on-post uh, colleges, you know, University of Maryland, et cetera. Get them finish out their BA, you know, get a degree, whatever. Go from there. Hmm. Uh, that would, it would be a good tour. Uh, but, um, now it's like, uh, you know, you can make more as a mall cop in the U.S. It's just ridiculous.
0: <laughs> right.
1: Oh, literally, that friend just made 10K, uh, in uh, Washington State with a security company for, for a month. Right. So, you know, I got to wonder who who's going to the Okona slots at, at these low rates. And I know a lot of guys are all about, I want to break in, I want to get in the industry, the younger guys. And I'm like, Dude, not the best route. <laughs> Selling yourself too cheap. Um, yeah, you know. Well,
0: and, and that's always that's always a something that we that we've we've been hearing and you've been hearing it for quite a while. But uh, you know, it, is people get into an industry, this one for example, yeah. for what we call all the wrong reasons, and sure, and sometimes maybe a lot of times they just don't stick around because it's like oh. It's not what I thought it was going to be, <laughs> but guys yeah. like like you, for example, I mean, for lack of a better term, got into it for the right reason. Um, and you and you mentioned things like you were bored and you wanted some adventure and and there's probably other things. Fun into problem it. adventure, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, but I mean, so you know, can you uh, talk just a little bit about that? I mean, what is it that that attracts and draws? because the conditions you're living in and it's not always a lot of money. So what is it that that attracts someone like you to continue to do that kind of work or do it when you did it? Well, you know, I hit, um, I went into Croatia like, I had
1: just turned 29. And, uh, then after that I was in Somalia and I turned 30 in Bosnia and I turned 31 in the Sudan with the SPLA, with the, living in the gorilla cancer for about six months, uh, and, you know, a young guy, and uh, single, no real responsibilities, and, um, you know, I just ended up being a war bum for a while, and I was writing for Soldier Fortune magazine and doing some other things here and there, paying the bills, uh, and wasn't getting paid for, for for most of that. I did uh, volunteer work with a couple NGOs that, that, that had me in East Africa that got me into uh, Cambodia, uh got me into Burma. Uh I did a lot of parachuting stuff and I ran a couple of little parachute tour business uh uh gigs, you know, and uh but uh yeah I was I was I was definitely an adrenaline junkie and, and uh chasing after uh uh you know some adventure and uh obviously if I'd been offered six grand a month to do something uh in the States uh I would have took it hmm. uh, six grand in Angola, uh, up uh, north of the Congo River. Uh, maybe if I'd have been offered eight, nine a month in the States and eight or six, rather, in uh, Angola, I quite possibly still would have went to Angola.
0: Hmm.
1: It wasn't just about the money, obviously. Uh, some jobs, of course, are about the money. You know, you got <laughs> to pay the bills. Uh, and found myself, uh, married to a foreign national girl from Scotland, uh, you know, by 1999 and living in Canada as an expat and, uh, you know, started having to look around, uh, to do something, you know, more serious Hmm. and, uh, was still writing, was still doing, uh, some tourism, uh, business work and, uh, Ended up working for Discovery Channel on a program, um, but uh, and then you know when it rains it pours. I got accepted for a position as a professor or an instructor at a local college up there uh, to work in basically a, a vocational program, uh, teaching in security management, uh, that type of thing. Uh, and then at the same time, I got an offer to go to Yemen for an oil company, which was going to be. You know, contract for X number of months with who knows if there'd be more work. And instead of taking a nice, safe, secure job a uh, mile and a half from my house, uh, standing in front of a classroom of students, uh, I went to Yemen. You know, <laughs> and and uh, and uh, Baghdad had just uh, you know we we had just uh, uh, been in uh, uh, Iraq about that time, and and so I knew work would work would be coming, and, and it was and I left the oil company and 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 went to Iraq. So it's I don't know if I could recommend what I've done. I mean, I've actually counseled people against it. Uh I've talked to a few young officers who uh new lieutenants who actually uh, I I was uh you know in the army with their fathers. Hmm. And one was a fan of the book and I had, my dedication to him said uh Listen to what your dad tells you. He's a lieutenant colonel. He knows what he's doing. You know, I go take this as a uh, cautionary tale and not as a uh, advisement. You know, right? Huh? You know, you know, and, and that's the thing. All these guys are really excited to. Uh, they want to go do this stuff like I did, and I'm like, well, you know, look down the road. You're going to have your 20 in. You're going to have a retirement. You're going to have a career. What happens? You know, you get a wife and kids along the way. Uh, yeah, you have some fun when you can, but. I can't really uh, admonish anyone for not having a, lo- a long-term life plan because I never have. Hmm. So,
0: <laughs> Okay, so... Uh, I live in a 4000
1: 4, square foot historic Victorian. I own three cars, uh, all of them in various states of disrepair, including a 79 Porsche. <laughs> I'm a bachelor. I got no kids. Uh, I own a lot of guns and books. I don't know what else to tell a guy. You know, it's like... <laughs> Yeah, the grass isn't always greener. You know what right. I mean. <laughs> ain't that
0: yeah, ain't that true. And of course, that's just stuff that you you kind of figure out on your own, unless you're completely daft as you grow and and gain the experience and then look back. Well, on I don't have
1: a, I don't have a Harley or any any tattoos, so I guess I'm not a real uh, operator or contractor. <laughs> but uh, and I, and I hate beards.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um. So your your work your your early your early work in in security um, from Somalia up to Croatia and other points in between and and maybe afterward yeah. how, how was that how was that different if it was different from the work you did in say Iraq
1: oh very much I mean well it's it's kind of hard to. Uh, I mean, I, I actually forget stuff I've done. I mean, it's just where I, you know, uh, it just came to mind. Yeah, I worked for Vance International, which was, um, uh, really kind of first civilian security work because Somalia, I was a DA civilian and I was a, uh, assistant team chief for the Somali Linguist Unit, which was a hundred Somalis we recruited and, uh, from the U.S. and then uh, took them over to use them basically as perps. As, as cultural advisors uh and I ended up being pretty much a cultural advisor as well to uh the command element over there and, and liaison to SF and and all that but because uh, I had time on the ground I I toe dipped into Somalia um a place called Garissa which is on the border the refugee camps and from there over when I've been in Kenya uh like four years earlier and that's pretty much how the army found me but uh uh, I'd written up some, uh, uh, basically the reports, I did a, a couple papers on linguistics and stuff for a friend that was in the uh, Army uh, language proponents, of the office at the Pentagon, and that stuff got filed, and uh, once that happened, well, I was in the system, but, um, yeah, that wasn't really what we called security, I mean, it was, uh, definitely it was uh, uh, contracting, uh, that was my first real contract, I'd uh, been down in Central America. Goofing around, uh, El Salvador and Guatemala, uh, prior to that, but, uh, wasn't really making any money. And, um, then, uh, but as far as Croatia and Bosnia, that was just, you know, I, I volunteered and joined up with a foreign army. Um, uh, I was actually, uh, a lot of my transport and stuff once I was in country, uh, going to Bosnia was paid for by a Ford Motor, uh, company, uh, distributor in, uh, in Croatia. Uh, you know, we were, it was out of people's pockets, but uh, that's that's who they all worked for. And, um, you know, we got money, uh, and, you know, beer and cigarette money, you know. I mean, it was like 80 marks a month, and I didn't, didn't even draw mine because at one time they said, well, to get on the roster for pay, we need your passport. And I'm like, well, that's not happening. <laughs> uh, I don't know who, whose idea that was, but I was like, well, you know, Maybe they, they wanted to pocket my 80 bucks, but I got, I got paid once, I think. Huh. Um, so you say, oh, mercenary, well, yeah, well, definition is you get paid. Um, I was a volunteer of the foreign, uh, two foreign armies, but, uh, and uh, the stuff with uh, the different uh, guerrilla revolutionary movements like the SPLA in Sudan or the, uh, uh, uh KPLA, uh, in, uh, in Burma, the Karen or the uh, you know, that was, uh, after piggybacking with an NGO and then just finding myself wandering around with a weapon either, uh, much like, uh, Cambodia too, was, uh, you know, secure the doctors, you know, keep the docs safe, that type of thing. Mm. Uh, but, um, the then actual, uh, you know, contract or security work was I worked for uh, uh, Vance International on a couple of uh, jobs or strike security hmm. and uh, uh, a guy I was in Bosnia with, an ex-ranger, had worked for Vance and he'd actually been uh, uh, EP type of thing, uh, stayed, stayed right for uh, Barbara Bush because of Vance's Vance was very tight with the Republican Party seeing as he married President Ford's daughter but um, uh, and then there was another outfit called Falcon Global. I worked a strike for them, and that would, uh, you know, you do 45 days, or in one case I did 110 days straight, uh, you know, and uh, room and boards provided. So it was, you know, easy money, sock it away. Uh, and that was pretty much what the, was available then. And then to go to Angola and work for Chevron, when I had a SF1 star retired, General Joe Stringham as my boss, um had a sergeant major and a and a e7 both that were in the chain ahead of me but uh, either went to uh, another assignment or or opted out and I just got bumped up mm. and ended up putting two guys I knew on the team below me and uh, but that was a real deal that was hey like I said good money uh someplace really uh, really wild in a- 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 Angola and um, a corporate. Uh, you know, defense contractor uh, slash security company hired us to uh, to work for Chevron, and uh, that was like the big time, you know. And, and people don't realize how few and far between those jobs were then. Hmm. Uh, very limited. Uh, Dine Corps had a few guys, mostly pilots and things like that, you know. Um, we had uh, some patrol craft there in Angola, and that was run by DSL Defense Services. Uh, Limited out of uh, the UK, and you had some SAS outfits that had been around working in Oman and uh, uh, Yemen and, and some of these places uh, since the 60s, and of course Vanel in Saudi Arabia, and all those guys were either retired colonels that were instructors in very specific uh, uh, fields or uh, your mechanical types, guys are, are you know fixing and maintaining weapon systems for the Saudis. It wasn't a whole lot of uh, stuff out there for a basic uh, trigger puller, hmm. uh, and, and um, but obviously that changed in, in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. But uh, with the need for PSDs and and uh, force protection and site security, uh, the the thing is that historically, you have to look at it. That was really a, a gold rush, a flash in the pan, so to speak. And um, there were too many guys that got sucked into that uh, contractor lifestyle. All of a sudden, you got a guy that's 25 or 28, uh, did a hitch in uh, maybe recon or the Rangers, or uh, you know, even just the 82nd Regiment free, whatever, and he gets into Blackwater, Triple Canopy, uh, Dyncore, any of the other various companies, whether it was Aegis or, or SOC or, or whoever uh, uh coaches uh and they're making ten, twelve, maybe fifteen K a month. And uh they come home after a year and woohoo they gotta buy the car, I gotta buy the Harley, uh and it's gone. And they go they go back over because hey, it's uh, yeah, they like it, the money's good, but as we see that didn't it continue on in in perpetuity. It was amazing that it went as long as it did. Uh you know. And uh, I know more than a few guys that, that that had the car, the house, girlfriend, wife, whatever, and then, you know, two, three years later, they're, they're broke, and they're right. back at it looking for something else, and some of them have done it two or three times. And that's not uh, any any way, shape, or form a, a defamation of of, of them. It's just, it's just a fact. Right. It's just a reality. And I think you could draw parallels with oil field workers and uh, some other industries where uh, all of a sudden the wages go through the roof. And there's a lot of opportunities, and everybody increases their lifestyle, And but you've got to be prepared for the day to come when uh, you can't maintain that. Right,
0: right. So can, uh, can, can you understand, or maybe you do understand, and uh, maybe uh, expound on it a little bit or briefly, uh, why – the term mercenary versus—I mean, we consider ourselves, at least what what a lot of us did, private security contractors, and and a lot of what you did was, pro, you know, private security or training advising. Why do you think the term um, mercenary gets thrown at guys like you, and and people look at you with such disdain? I mean, you're
1: uh, well, you know, the the media likes it; it's sexy. I mean, uh, there was there were more than a few reviews of my book, uh, where that's exactly how they titled it. And uh, then it's been turned around on me, and I've actually had uh, people refer to me as, a, as a, a self-identified mercenary. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I was a volunteer. You can say soldier of fortune, maybe. Um, adventurer. But, uh, and then, of course, uh, people will call Blackwater, all the other, uh, you know, companies where Blackwater's kind of become the generic Velcro, uh, you know, uh, Kleenex of the security industry. Uh, that's the name everybody knows. It's the name that pops up in all the TV shows when they need to cast somebody as an evil uh, bad guy. But, um uh, it, yeah, it's just sensationalism, it's journalism, or it's uh, an attempt to uh, basically use a slur, I mean, to demean or defame somebody. But, uh, you know, uh, the general purpose, or the, uh, I'm sorry, the general overall definition of the adjective mercenary is, and I'm looking at this now online, uh, adjective of a person or their behavior primarily concerned with making money at the expense of of ethics
0: hmm. wow.
1: used in the context. She's nothing but a mercenary little gold digger. Now, there, as a noun, it's a professional soldier hired to serve in a foreign army. Hmm. And similar as Soldier Fortune. Now, that's that's just one, one definition. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. of, you know, and then uh, people also ask, what is a mercenary killer? <laughs> I, mean, you know, I mean, it's just... <laughs>
0: Well, that's interesting, but that definition, doesn't that fit very well with, for example, you mentioned uh, French Foreign Legion, yeah. for example, right? Yeah, exactly.
1: Now, here Wikipedia says a mercenary, sometimes known as a soldier of fortune, is an individual who takes part in military conflict for personal profit, is otherwise an outsider to the conflict, and is not a member of any other official military. Mercenaries fight for money in forms of payment rather than for political interests. Or I would say possibly just adventure. Hmm. Uh, but again, that's the key. I, I published an article, uh, on this and sold your fortune. I had a friend who was an attorney. I went to school with a couple guys that became attorneys. And, uh, I researched it, the history of some of this stuff and, and the laws and the U.S. laws. Cause I was, um, somewhat, um, uh, interested, I guess, because in the frontier passport, it says that if you serve in a foreign military, uh, you can be subject to expatriation. Uh, now, the Supreme Court has ruled that uh, a native-born American citizen cannot be deprived of their citizenship. Hmm. Uh, this is, would be similar to the old story, uh, Man Without a Country, where they put a guy on a ship as punishment. He's never allowed back on U.S. soil. Hmm. Um, but you can't strip some other citizenship if they're native born now obviously, yes, if you were a naturalized citizen then that that comes up the question um, but uh so i I researched this because it came came to a head in croatia actually uh someone said, hey, uh you know you could uh we know this in the passport, and we looked at it, and you could be in trouble, and we don't want you to be in trouble hmm. uh, A gentleman I mentioned in a Conversation offline, Mike Williams, who had, uh, old SF, uh, officer, one of the first 20 SF officers under Aaron Bank, what they call one of the originals, mm. uh, had ended up in the Congo with Mike core uh, and, uh, one reason he gave that he said he left was, uh, uh, they brought this issue up that, uh, you know, you're out of here because, uh, uh, you could lose your citizenship. But actually it was, if anything, it was U.S. government pressure, but uh, I also considered him to possibly have been there in, a, in an official capacity. But, um, you know, I, anyways, I looked at this, wrote an article on it, and what came about was, interesting enough, that uh, mercenaries, actual mercenaries, are protected under Geneva Hague and the law of warfare, because there is, a, there is a, a whole paragraph in there about other combatants. In other words, if you're not a member of the standing army, but if you're in uniform and taking up arms for one side or the other, you're, you are afforded not only the protections given a member of one of the opposing forces, but uh, additional as well, because you are uh, not a, a typical Hmm. combatant, Um, and I could probably pull that article, if if I didn't know what we were talking about, I would have, but to quote from it, uh, but um, it was actually used in a law journal article in California, in an article called uh, Have Rifle Bowl Travel, and that was published by uh, uh, Montgomery McFate, or Mitzi McFate, who was the head anthropologist at HTS that we talked about. Uh, she had been with the uh, 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 Naval Institute, and then she went up to Monterey. but um, uh, if I remember right, but she's uh, at the Naval War College now, I'm sorry, but uh, she had uh, advanced degrees in both anthropology and law. and uh, but she knew who I was when I showed up at the program because she had uh, referenced one of my my one soldier fortune article on it's called Mercenaries and the Law. And uh, it was like here, here it is in black and white, you know. I went to the law books, uh, hmm. I went to uh, various court cases, and uh, said whatever anybody tells you, this, this is it. And uh, the FBI may show up at your door because you were fighting at a foreign army and have some questions, but the bottom line is there's nothing they can do to you. Hmm. Okay. Now, as long as you're not an American, so- not, as long as you're not in American soil and plotting the overthrow of a sovereign government, you're fine. There have been guys who went to prison for that. Okay. And a good book to read or a funny book to read is called Bayou of, uh, oh, not Bayou of Pigs. Yeah, Bayou of Pigs, not Bay of Pigs, but mm. Bayou of Pigs, B-A-Y-O-U. And it's about these, uh, bubbas down in Florida that were planning on invading, uh, the island of Dominica, the mm. Caribbean, and government. And it's just a farce. It happened. Huh. And that, that's what they got those guys for. Uh, so, and I haven't followed up on it, but I'm curious, uh, about the guys that were in Venezuela mm. that got, uh, got rolled down there, uh, that, that US exactly. and of course the question is, were they going into to possibly overthrow a legitimate government or is it an illegitimate government? Right. But if it's a legitimate government, there's, a, there's laws on the books that say you, you can't, uh. Basically conspire right. uh, under yeah. the soil so to get involved in another country's uh, government like that. Yeah,
0: right. So what you're what you're talking about now, and and I think you've referenced a couple of times. So that's different. So for people that are scratching their heads and saying, "Yeah, so what's the distinction?" Still, that's what we're talking about. That's that's the kind of difference that we're talking about versus what you did. That when people started slapping the term mercenary on you, because you were more. Of an advisor and a trainer, um, and uh, if you took if you fired back, you were firing back in defense, right?
1: Well, again, who was I working for? Uh, if I was, you know, I'm working for the U.S. government, uh, whether it's BA or State Department or whatever, and I can't be classified as a mercenary. I'm a contractor. I'm a consultant. Whatever you want to, whatever you want to, uh, however you want to phrase it. If, uh, uh, if I'm a volunteer with a foreign military, I've been enlisted or been commissioned in no foreign military. Um, you could possibly say I'm, I'm a mercenary soldier in the, in the style of Sir John Hawkwood and some of these guys in the medieval era and the, uh, early Renaissance that, that traveled throughout Europe and sometimes in whole units, whole companies that, that sold their swords, so to speak. Uh, to that, to different, uh, states and, and nations. But, uh, uh, at the same time, I didn't make, you can't show how, where, where I profited. I didn't really make any money, uh, for a couple of deals. I was, you know, again, a volunteer. Uh, and I think the word mercenary then will, will get pulled in, uh, in a political sense or, you know, if you're, if you're on the side, I don't like, you're a mercenary. If you're on the side, I like, you're a volunteer. Okay. Was the abraham Lincoln Brigade's mercenaries? I don't believe so. They went over there to fight, fight for a cause. Hmm. They went over to fight for, uh, you know, uh, Republican state. Uh, but um, did they get paid? Uh, maybe. Uh, enough to, you know, like I said, uh, uh, beer and Beer and cigarettes, but um, uh, now obviously, if you are a fascist, if you are one of Franco's people, uh, or if you were the Germans or the Italians supporting Franco, you would look at these Americans that served over there, wearing a red scarf. Some of them were socialists, some of them were communists, some of them weren't, some of them had no political interest. They were just there to fight for for uh, the rightful government of Spain. Uh, you know, yeah, you would turn them mercenaries then. Hmm. You know, okay, and. Uh, some of those guys lived under a cloud for years in this country. Others um, were readily accepted into uh, U.S. military forces, and their experience was well received. Whereas others had had problems. Some of them might have been because they were actually uh, more political than the other guys, right. you know. But uh, there were guys that, that kept that quiet too, I'm sure. Right. Uh, you know. And uh, but if you look at uh, the Flying Tigers. Uh, that's kind of a gray area as well. Now, I've actually seen the the letters that were were given to these guys, uh, Pappy Boynton being the most famous uh, in popular popular culture, but basically they were offered a job uh, at pretty good money for the day uh, to go fly or be mechanics. I have uh, – there was a guy that lived in my hometown, was air crew over there. We forget that not just – Pilots are flying tigers, but you needed armorers and mechanics and, and everything else. And uh, they were basically told, "Look, if you resign your commission and you know publicly and go over and uh, and work for this corporation supporting the Chinese, that we'll we'll bring you back when you want to come back." It was a wink and a nod that they were actively recruited while in uniform on active service, active duty, whether they were Air Corps, uh, Marine Corps, Naval pilots to go over and fly as essentially mercenary pilots hmm. in in the pay of a private company supporting the uh, Chinese nationalists. Hmm. And uh, and they all, uh, you know, when America came into the war and they stood the Flying Tigers down, mostly they, they all came back to uh, their... Regular commissions right that's interesting well, I mean that, you know we, we've seen the same thing with CIA uh, obviously involvement in different conflicts so there were there are guys that uh, were off doing stuff in foreign countries and it turns out the whole time they still either held a commission or, or still were you know uh, active uh, CIA you know hmm. and some of those are is debatable. To this day, you know, obviously, because it's classified and no one's no one's going to verify it. But I I know a couple. I know a couple that for, for years served in foreign militaries or actually government assets.
0: Hmm. Now those typically, um, and correct me where and if you want, but those those sorts of things that we're talking about uh, that that have been around for a while and, and they go on, but those typically are for the interest of the United States and their, are with or for what we would term a friendly or allied nation typically, correct? Oh, certainly. Uh,
1: and, or, uh, you know, we may have a, a neutral attitude about it, but we want some there, someone there on the ground, uh, letting us know that, you know, where things are going.
0: Right. Okay. Okay.
1: Uh, and and uh,
0: I'm sorry. You were saying? No, no, it's oh. yeah. Okay, so um, there's there's a lot of debate about how Hollywood portrays things, and, and, and in conversation, most of us typically agree that they really missed the mark on, uh, on on a lot of this, or most of it, if not all of it. But uh, when you were talking earlier, one one that came up in conversation with a friend of mine was. Um, The movie War, uh, uh, Dogs of War, based, I think he said, on the executive outcomes incident in uh, Africa were... Well, um, no,
1: If you're talking about Dogs of War, Christopher Walken, that that predated that. Uh, What's interesting is is that um, that was uh, uh, Frederick Forsyth wrote that, Frederick Forsyth, and he's a a friend of a good friend, actually, and someday I'm going to put it off my butt, I can get over to England, I can and have lunch with the guy. But um, uh, his first book was the Biafra story. And he was in Biafra, uh, which was, you know, breakaway Republic of Nigeria, basically. Hmm. And uh, unfortunately, the British government was uh, more or less uh, uh, behind the Nigerians. Uh, But uh, some famous, uh, well, I I know them anyways, but most people have never heard of them, uh, some famous, uh, soldier spot there, one being Rolf Steiner, uh, who, uh, he's mentioned in the, my next book, if I ever get, get around to get it published. Uh, he had ended up, uh, uh, French German, French foreign legionnaire after World War II, uh, was a, uh, you know, basically mercenary soldier, uh, in the Congo. Uh, then in Biafra and ended up in the Sudan where he was in prison for several years. And I'd actually met this old guy, uh, in the Sudan that, that, uh, had trained under, uh, Steiner. Uh, but, um, when he was in Biafra, Forsyth got hooked up with, uh, a couple other, uh, uh, quite a few of them, I mean, he, he knew him very well, uh, and, uh, you know, being a even though being a journalist he, he ran with the expats and uh he uh was involved in a an operation, mercenary type operation to go into a, a small African nation and uh overthrow them. And he was involved in the planning phases of it and was very familiar with um uh, what was going on there. And he used everything he learned, everything about in user certificates, smuggling weapons, getting a boat, uh, recruiting, uh, ex- uh, re- recruiting uh, emigres, that type of thing, hmm. and uh, that was formed the basis of uh, Dogs of War, hmm. the book. Now the movie, of course, is just uh, hits some of the high points and glosses over a lot of stuff. Where the book is almost reads like uh, for that time period a how-to, hmm. um, and so very much based in, in 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 reality. Now, of course, we get the Hollywood uh, portrayal, uh, you know, uh, macho daring do and all that, but uh, um, I, I found it realistic when I watched it just because of the uniforms and, and weapons and stuff, and the, the guys were just wearing basically like uh, uh, brown uh, coveralls or boiler suits, as we called them, uh, when I was in Angola, and I had a... 120 Angolans, and what were they issued for uh, field wear? Uh, boiler suits, mm. um, as, as my general called them. But they were uh, just your, your kind of medium brown tan uh, chocolate-covered coveralls, uh, you know, for PT, for actual operations if we had to go into the jungle, uh, for the guys we trained as uh, like offshore uh, rig uh, rescue swimmers, that type of thing. Um, you know, during the day they wore, normally they wore, you know, your black slacks with a gray shirt with uh, insignia on it as like gate guards and stuff on an oil camp. But, uh, yeah, it's, it gets down to the basics. I see a lot of Gucci gear out there today and a lot of guys have all the Gucci gear, but it comes right down to it. It's, uh, different places I've been. It's like, uh, cast off old, uh, fatigues from somebody else's army and, and hopefully a good pair of boots and, and whatever web gear you can put together. Uh, but uh, yeah, I've seen some real hodgepodge of stuff, but if it works, you know. And uh, just your basic AK maybe, and if you're lucky, a pistol and a good knife or something like that. And that was what it was back in the day, and that's what it still is, and if you get in the – any of the uh, – uh, rebel or guerrilla movements around the world. I mean, they just don't have this high-speed stuff. And uh, I laugh because when I was in Afghanistan, I wore native clothing, so I had to wear a shalwar kameez, a vest, a hole. I dyed my blonde hair brown, grew a beard, which itched. And the only concession I made was sometimes wearing uh, khaki trousers like a 5'11 and then some hiking boots as opposed to sandals. I had a compatriot that was very comfortable in the full pajamas and sandals. Mm. Um, I figured well, at the, at the distance, we're going to notice that uh, their pants are not pajama pants. They're going to pretty much figure out, uh, I'm uh, not, not a path in anyways, but, uh, I actually had a darker tan. I was actually darker than some of the guys, uh, because they try to stay out of the sun. Um, and, um, I tan pretty good, but, um, I carried a, a guy asked me at a, at a gun show once, I was talking to him, you know, usual fat Bubba gun nut, and asked me, what well, would you carry over there? And I go, well, I had a basic Chinese AK, and uh, I had a uh, Pakistani uh, M9. Oh, you wouldn't get me over there with that, boy, if I can't take my fig or my Navisky. you And know, I'm thinking like, well, in your wildest dreams, you've got no background, no experience, you're about 100 pounds overweight, uh, and that's your reason. and This is what you tell people why you're not a high speed operator on a contract is because, uh, they won't let you take your own guns. And I'm like, I just shake my head. And, uh, you find that a lot with a lot of guys. That, like, as soon as you're getting on the contract, or are asking, what kind of, what, 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 what weapons are we going to have? Or, what, you know, I want this, I want that, or are we getting this, are we getting that. And I'm like, dude, you get the job, you take the job, you sign the contract for the money, and you see what you got when you get there. Because I've had too many people promise me. Everything from, yeah, so Noveski to we'd have grenade launchers, we were getting M4s, and we get other shit instead. You know, and you end up with uh, even Blackwater gave me one of the worst pieces of uh, friggin' body armor I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah. We had to duct tape the shoulders to pull them up. Uh, you know, just horrible carrier, you know. and uh, But it happens. It happens, you know. And... uh but I just shake my one. see the guy starts talking about gear, and I'm like, okay. And i got friends that, that have been on a lot of contracts and have been on a couple with me. And when I proposition them with something, basically, I go, hey, what do you think about You want to go do this with me? And they'll start asking about what kind of guns they got to have. Uh, I, I have fixed, repaired, rebuilt so many AK-47s around the world, it's ridiculous. And no sooner did we rebuild about a half dozen uh Golden Navy AKs, which included having the the oil camp wood shop hmm. manufacture, fabricate, buttstocks for them. Uh, and we cleaned them up and painted them and, you know, swapped parts and got them working. But the Navy wanted them back. And what did we get? We got another dozen shitty rifles handed to us. And it's like, okay. All right. So, And one of my guys was ready to mute me and quit right there because he did not want to be the, armor for the uh, local Angola Navy detachment.
0: <laughs> you know, it, it, I said,
1: well, <laughs> you know, we just needed to get an overlap. I'm not giving you back the good ones until we fix the other ones, you know, and then we'll give you back some good ones. But, you know, once they got some, saw that we could fix weapons, then it was, uh, you know, we'll get, we want them back now, you know. <laughs> uh, that's, that's Africa, the third world, I mean, you know, uh, I've had had a Vietnam era M sixteen, Filipino M sixteen with the sight thrusted right off mm. pretty much. I mean, instead of a peep sight, I had a use, uh, had a you know typical kind of U site. Um you know, just But it's like hey uh again that's the movies, you know, these guys got all the greatest gear and stuff and right. they're making halos out of uh, civilian learjets or whatever. <laughs> I mean it's just like what you know, bottom line is you need a guy that's nuts and bolts and, and can improvise, adapt, and overcome, as my Marine Corps friends say, and uh, and suck it up, and that's what you're paid for. Right. If, you know, if everything's perfect, you've got great living conditions, you got the top tier chow, you've got, you know, air conditioning, and you've got the latest, greatest gear and weapons and all this stuff. Hell, who couldn't do that job?
0: Right.
1: You know? Right. I mean, yeah, and, and again, uh, you've got to be able to deal with uh, foreign nationals. Right. You know, uh, if, if, if you don't like the LBGs, the little brown guys, and if you can't squat on the floor and eat the chicken and rice every day or something, or, you know, when I was in the jungle in Burma, uh, just kind of hanging out and helping out, and there was a Marine veteran in charge of a sniper training program, which was very successful. The the unit uh, popped a Burmese general on the golf course outside of uh, Young Gang outside of Rangoon, uh, and that's that's I thought that was classic. Uh, and uh, when I showed up, he said, "Well, Rob, we got uh, we to get uh, two meals here. We got lentils and rice, or rice and lentils." <laughs> <laughs> and one day he hands me his bowl. And I pull out my chopsticks. I look in the bowl and there's little brown bits or something. I go, "What's this?" He goes, "Meat." I'm like, "Yeah, I know. What kind of meat?" And he goes, "Meat." <laughs> I'm like, "Well, we ain't missing anybody, are we?" You know, I'm like, <laughs> "Wow." You know, what? But, uh, yeah. If if it moved, it was gonna die. Right? Right. Snake, lizard, bird, rat. You right. know, and there are people that. Just can't function because they come out of big army. And, uh, you know, I had a sergeant major, uh, retired. He'd been, uh, command sergeant major advisor to the command in, uh, in Afghanistan show up in Iraq on our camp, uh, little, not even a fob, just a couple old Iraqi buildings and, and trailers and a couple tents outside in the Joss. And he's like, why why we need signs? We don't know which way to go. We go this way, we go that way, you know, but whatever, whatever. Like a look, dude, it's a square. It's a fence line. Right? If the fence is on your left <laughs> and you're headed north, <laughs> you're gonna be taking a left <laughs> you know, and headed west across the <laughs> north end. Yeah, I don't know. If you can't figure out this navigation, I go. We've been doing it for a couple months. But if you want a sign, go make a sign. Really? Well, he wanted someone else to make a sign.
0: Huh.
1: I said, you ain't a sergeant major anymore. He actually walked around one day, going, "This needs fixed. That. Why is this garbage here? This needs picked up." And I'm going, "Go right ahead, motherfucker." <laughs> he, he looked at me like I was insane. I go, "You're. You get paid the same as I do. I got seniority. I've actually been here longer. I'm a team leader. You want to do something? Get the." That's a good idea. Why don't you go do that? Right. <laughs> so, and without giving away his identity and stuff, the 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 guy actually was on one of my posts with Blackwater years later, uh, and had had uh, had had a heart attack. Hmm. Um, just you know, stress, whatever. But uh, hey, just because you were twenty years this or that, or even you know four or five years high speed this or that, doesn't mean you can adapt to that, that uh, environment. Right. And a lot of it has, you know, things I've had issues with is uh, dealing with civilians, you know, not telling them they're, they're, they're an idiot and get out of my face. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, client relations and nodding your head and, and, uh, you know, or understanding the client's uh, issues, Hmm. you know, uh, you know, you, you can't be, you can't, you, you can't run around with your weapons out. Okay, you got to put them in a case. Or okay, whatever. I mean, all these whole things. Right. Which, if you bristle and you say, "Well, that's not the way we did it," in the Ranger Battalion, well, you know what? You're not in the Ranger Battalion.
0: Right.
1: And some guys just can't make that transition, for you know any of a very, various reasons.
0: Thank you for tuning in to part one of this episode of O'Connor's The Contractor's Life. With my special guest, Rob Crott, tune in next week as we continue our discussion on Part 2 with Rob Crott and his experiences as a contractor.